I think there's enough negativity in the world right now in 2020. So instead of focusing on all these, you know, terrible, gruesome injuries that we saw today, let's shout out some of the players who are going to see big bumps in their stock over the next couple of days. You know, Deion Lewis and Wayne Gallman, uh, Michael Pittman Jr., Aaron Jones and MVS. Jarek McKinnon, Darius Slayton, Malcolm Brown, Jerry Judy, Mike Davis getting eight catches after CMC goes down, Jeff Driscoll, I guess. I mean, am I missing anybody right now? Yeah, you're missing the two uh, main ones, and that's Dirk Cutter and uh, Greg Williams. Oh, yeah, their stock's going way up. Yeah, because Dan Quinn and Adam Gase... Y'all ain't making it past next week, my guys. No. Because you guys are terrible. And I hope you hear this too. And hopefully they do something about it because, man, I hate to be negative, but they just suck. Terrible coaches, terrible franchises. I mean, Ridley snapped, which was lit, but nobody else did anything besides Matt Ryan. Gave up a 19-point lead to the measly Dallas Cowboys. Uh, Jets, I, I have no words for the Jets, so that's that. They just suck. Number one overall pick, Trevor Lawrence incoming to the Big Apple. Yeah. For sure. Definitely, definitely. I mean, Greg Williams has, I mean, this will be what, his like third or fourth interim head coach job? Matter of time, right? Yeah, I mean, and then all he has to do is just put some low-key incentives, you know, on the bulletin board, like maybe like $5,000, you go and knock out whoever they're playing. You never know, Get right? back into his early 2000s bag? Yeah. Get back into the bounty gate because that's the only way the Jets are going to win is if they start (laughs) knocking some of these players out. What's going on, everybody? Welcome to episode 90 of the DFS Dose Podcast, your fix of daily fantasy sports information, strategy, and analysis. I'm your host, Ben Hover, joined as I always am by Joey Carrion. And on today's show, we are recapping week two of the NFL from a DFS perspective, taking a look at our cash game results, retrospectively reviewing some of the slate decision points, and finally closing things out with some analysis of key usage notes trends or traps to look at going forward but before we do any of that joey can you tell the people how they can support the podcast as always you can support the dfs dose by following us on twitter at the dfs dose and then you can also support us by subscribing or following on apple podcasts spotify soundcloud podcast addict stitcher wherever you listen to your podcast the dfs dose is there and then obviously you can subscribe to the dfs dose youtube channel uh, my new millie maker video will be up on wednesday and you know i did hit on a couple of the stacks that you know snap so shout out to me and then uh ben's video comes out every single friday detailing the cash game picks which also snapped this week so shout out to ben and yeah that is the best way to support us and, and we appreciate all the support yeah absolutely pretty solid start to the year for us you know overall i guess i mean for me especially but let's just hop right into our results you know how are you doing i know you just had to witness the patriots lose in prime time and you know it wasn't the greatest dfs day for you either so how are you handling life uh you know is this the first major tilt of the year for you it was a big fat l for the entire day didn't win in dfs even though you know like i said i i just i gave away some some winning stacks but it's also about who you play with those stacks and i, and I had the pieces 
to make great lineups. I just didn't uh, put them together. So that's always unfortunate. And then for cash games, my lineup ended with 106 points. Mm. Uh, good enough to win three out of 50 $1 head to heads. Um, one zero percent of my double ups. And it was just tough because all three of my receivers in my cash lineup exited with an injury. So obviously that is going to be very hard to overcome. Um, so fat L for me, just got to look forward to next week and keep it pushing. I mean, so is that more or less tilting to you in your opinion when it's like injury? Cause for me, I feel like that's a little bit less tilting because it's not like you made the wrong play. It's just like straight up bad variance. So, yeah. so that's easier for me to stomach than like making a bad play and it not working out and then being like, Oh wow. Why did I not have a better process? But uh, you know, with injuries, it's, it's really completely out of your control. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's definitely less tilting because like you just said, you can't really control your players getting injured. I mean, I guess I could have picked players that didn't get injured um obviously but you know i didn't and all three of my receivers left the game uh perryman got hurt in like the second quarter exited the game paris campbell like blew out his knee in the first quarter and Devonte adams left in the third quarter so that's always tilting and then at that point i was i knew i was already dead so didn't really affect me uh that much but just sucks you know yeah for sure i got a little bit more lucky in terms of the injury variance i wasn't on Devonte adams in cash so my cash line ended up scoring 161.9 good for a 91.3 percent win rate uh, 190% of my head to heads, 100% of my double ups. Really, the only guy that was impacted by this, you know, injury riddled slate was Paris Campbell, who I had everywhere. Had him in three GPP lineups that had over 200 points on the lineup. So I, I was really close to a big day in tournaments yet again. Still profited pretty, pretty decently on the slate, but, uh, could have been a massive week for me had Paris Campbell not gone down. He was my most owned wide receiver by far in, all formats so that was definitely tough to stomach but still you know i like i can't feel that bad about it on a week where i profited once again so we could just jump right into some of these slate decision points real quick i will just read off some of the guys that were highest owned in cash games this week pretty uh obviously and and expectedly derrick henry jonathan taylor and zeke elliott were the three highest owned running backs uh you know this was very obvious from the start that these guys were going to be super chalky henry was 71 percent taylor 62 percent zeke 52 uh the only real real chalky quarterback was kyler murray at 55.4 percent and I'm, I'm going by the 25 dollar massive single entry double up for these ownerships uh Devontae adams massive chalk at wide receiver 45.4 percent only scored 6.6 points exited the game in the third quarter with a hamstring and then a bunch of guys you know sitting around the 20 to 17 percent range uh, Amari Cooper, CD Lamb, Corey Davis, Paris Campbell, Chris Herndon was a really chalky tight end play at 34 percent. Uh, Deontay Johnson super chalky at 34 percent as well um, and then the other guys I guess Logan Thomas and Jordan Reed between 19 and 16 percent. Let's kick it off with the three running backs because this was one of the more obvious weeks in terms of lineup construction. I think with so many cheap receivers, everybody had the same three running backs for the most part in terms of Henry, Taylor, and Zeke. 
Uh, did you ever have any thoughts about getting off of these guys? Were there any pivots that you were considering at any point for cash games? No, I, I didn't really consider uh, moving off of these three running backs because I just thought they were all great plays at their respective prices. From a general slate overview, I thought it was too risky to play Miles Sanders. He was the running back that I was considering you know, playing, and I know you were as well. But I thought it was too risky to play him in cash, uh, not knowing if he was truly healthy, although he said he was and, and, you know, he said he was 100 percent. But I found that hard to believe, especially with him coming off of a soft tissue injury. And then not to mention all of the injuries that the Eagles offense have faced. And then if the listeners uh, listened all the way to the end, the Rams money line is one of my favorite bets. So I thought the Rams are going to control the game and they did and they ended up winning. So shout out to that bet. So uh, so I thought it was going to be a very uh, negative game script for Miles Sanders. And I didn't think they were going to use him in a workhorse role, but I was wrong. They did. He ended up having a good day, but that is the only player that I would have considered moving off of Henry, Zeke, or Jonathan Taylor, who all I still feel like were the right plays from a process standpoint. I had some skepticism around Henry, uh, as you will know from our group chat, and, and I was trying to find ways to get off of him, but ultimately I just couldn't do it. I mean, it was just too good of a spot for him with the terrible Jags defense. And, you know, I think that again, it was like, bad variance for him. The reason that I was off of Henry is because I thought it was going to be a slow paced, low scoring game. And I thought it was very reasonable that with AJ Brown out, you could bump down the Titan scoring expectation. You could see a situation where, you know, this game ended up being like under 30 points total. Well, turns out that it goes over 60. Somehow Derrick Henry only has 8.4 points in a game like that, which I think is really just just bad variance on a certain level. I mean, I I did want to play Sanders, but for some of the reasons that you said, I thought better of it. You know, I, I kind of was on the same page as you in terms of thinking the Rams would have a good shot to win this game, especially with, you know, Aaron Donald, you know, wreaking havoc on their terrible and battered offensive line. So, you know, I ended up running Henry as well didn't get off Sanders. And, you know, a key component of that was how good I felt about playing Amari Cooper. So Cooper came in in cash games at about 21%, which was over, you know, half the percentage of Devontae Adams. And I thought that they were pretty equal plays, all things considered, especially when you look at the game environment for Dallas. So, I mean, how did you feel about Cooper in cash uh, versus Adams? I know that you were on Cooper early in the week. You and I had sort of agreed that he was you know, one of the best plays on the slate period at 6.3K coming off of a 14 target week one, but you ended up getting off of him. Did you want to, you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah. I mean, I think that was the wrong move uh, from a process standpoint, not playing Amari Cooper, just because I did end up playing Kyler Murray in my lineup. Uh, so I feel like I should have ran Amari Cooper instead of paying up to Devante just to get some exposure to Dak since I wasn't playing Dak. So, you know, that's definitely a hitch in my process that I have to fix for next week. Uh, but just with Devante Adams, you know, he, I thought he was one of the strongest plays on the slate pre-lock going up against, you know, a defense that we're going to be targeting a ton in DFS, um, a defense 
that is decimated by injuries in the back end uh, to Desmond Trufant and some of the other guys that they have there. So I thought it was just a smash spot for Devontae Adams. And I mean, the Packers ended up scoring 42 points and they had a very good day offensively, but just didn't work out for Adams. Only ended with three targets, uh, left the game hurt. And I guess I shouldn't have paid up for him at 8100 especially since I was equally as high on Cooper as I was on Adams but you know just got to improve the process for next week I mean I, I think Adams probably would have had a much bigger game I mean it was a quiet game considering he did play the entire uh first half and only finished with three for 36 on three targets which I think was definitely surprising you know speaking of Kyler I feel like you and most of you know, the DFS world were more fixated on Kyler than I was at, you know, turning out at 55.4% in cash games is just astronomical. You rarely see quarterbacks get above 20% because it's so, you know, flat in terms Mm -hmm. of scoring. People will play different guys. People, you know, will fit the builds. But I think two reasons that his, you know, ownership was so high was one, because of the rushing that we saw in week one, and two, because the lineup construction was so... Uh, uniform across the industry like everybody had the same build and the same price ranges so it just made a lot of natural sense for Kyler I personally felt like Dak was worth getting up to I mean I just wanted exposure to that game in every way that I could get it you know highest total uh, two high-powered offenses with weak defenses it just seemed like an absolute smash spot you know it seemed like after the game we were texting a little bit that you still feel like Kyler was the better process pre-locked you want to talk about that a little bit yes yeah, so I think everybody did gravitate towards Kyler because of his obvious misprice and you know I think he was one of the biggest misprices on the entire slate at any position but to be fair I feel like Dak and Kyler were both great plays at their salaries Dak was 6,800 Kyler was 6,100 but Dak did run into the absolute nut game script that we touched on earlier I mean the Cowboys got down by 19 or 20 points or whatever early they looked absolute shit they were terrible Uh, had like three fumbles or whatever Falcons got out to an early lead then it was just boom sailing sailing for Dak Prescott three one yard touchdowns come on bro three (laughs) three quarterback sneaks at the you know one yard line or the one and a half yard line or whatever could have easily went to Zeke and Zeke could have had a 50 point day but Dak got those and the Cowboys were four and a half point favorites at home Uh, so I expected Dak to have a good day but obviously he had a ceiling day and and you know that that's DFS people are going to have their ceiling games, but that that's just the ultimate variance in my opinion. Uh, but just in terms of Kyler, he got to 33, so he scored 10 less points in Dak because Dak scored 43 with the bonuses and, and all that. Um, Kyler was 16 yards away from getting the 300 yard bonus, and then the Cardinals were also leading the entire game, which obviously hurt his fantasy production from like a ceiling standpoint. Uh, since the Washington football team really didn't perform well in this matchup. So just with all that, I still believe Kyler was ultimately the better play due to, you know, his rushing floor that that we've seen two games now, um, at least 60 plus rushing yards in both games and the projected pace of play. But they were both great. So there were there were two aspects to Kyler as a play that I think went overlooked that were the key reasons that I wanted to get up to Dak. First was you know, kind of what we saw play out in that I didn't believe Washington could put any pressure on Arizona to, 
you know, keep giving it their all. And we saw that as they were, you know, running it down heavy in the fourth. So that was one reason. Obviously, I didn't expect Dak to get down three scores and have to be, you know, playing comeback the entire game. But I did think that the Falcons offense and the Cowboys defense was bad enough that it could be a steady back and forth, which would have been probably equally good for Dak. So... You know, that was my process there. And also just the Washington football team, as bad as they are, their front seven is pretty nasty. Um, And I thought that the, you know, the Cardinals offensive line doesn't really look that great. And I thought that that could potentially cause some problems. Although, I mean, Kyler, just from like, you know, a watch the tape perspective, I mean, damn, he looks really, really good and elusive and just super, super great. Really impressed with the way Kyler is playing visually. But uh, yeah, it was more so a situation with just thinking that the Washington team was so bad that Kyler and the Cardinals would just, you know, walk all over them. Yeah. And I mean, they definitely did. And Kyler still scored 33 points, had two rushing touchdowns. And it's obviously a good sign when they're designing a rushing place for Kyler in the red zone. Um, So we saw him score two rushing touchdowns. I feel like Dak just ran into the greatest variance that you can ever run into uh, for a quarterback on a team that was supposed to win by more than, you know, four or five points in that game. And they ended up losing. And I mean, three one yard touchdowns. I just can't get over that (laughs) fact that. That he vultured Zeke three times on the goal line. And one of the situations was just crazy. This boy got his head knocked off. Andy Dalton comes in for a play. They run a stupid play action on the one yard line. Don't hand the ball off to Zeke. That, so that play counts as, you know, the play that Dak has to sit out. Then Dak comes back in <laughs> the next play, scores a one yard touchdown. So close. That is the definition of variance. And, you know, that that's what happens in fantasy football, though. So can't be too mad, but I still feel like Kyler was ultimately the better play due to his rushing ability and just the Cardinals dominating in this game, uh, which happened. So Quick peek ahead. I mean, Kyler at Detroit next week. Jesus. But uh, we'll talk about that <laughs> on the Thursday preview show. Last thing I want to touch on in terms of the slate decision points was what we did at tight end. It was never really in play for us to pay up at tight end, obviously. Uh, not, not a smart move in cash games. Jordan Reed, though. I mean, Jordan Reed was never on my radar, Joey, but I mean, he was popular. He was 16.4% owned in cash games. You know, that was, you know, less than 3% owned than what Logan Thomas came in. You know, why, how did we miss Jordan Reed? I guess is my question. Cause I know that neither of us were feeling that, you know, our buddy Jared was texting us saying he was going to play Jordan Reed. And I told him that, you know, you might as well just be part of the rake if you do that. I mean, I was dead wrong with that. So, you know, eight targets, seven receptions, 50 yards, the two touchdowns helps a bunch of tight ends snapped, but Jordan Reed in particular, I mean, how did we just not ever consider him? I guess. Yeah. I mean, I guess. You know, we didn't consider a historically injury-prone player that is one hit to his head away from dying of CTE on the field. (laughs) Um, Only played 10 snaps in week one, and I know the snap counts aren't out yet uh, at the time that we're recording this, so I don't know exactly how many snaps he played. But before the game, they said that they were only going to have him out there for like 20 snaps max but I don't I didn't watch that game so I don't know if that was true or not say he played 20 or 25 snaps and he got eight targets I mean uh just ran into the absolute nuts which I guess is the theme of this week a lot of popular fantasy plays on DraftKings uh ran into the absolute nuts this week um but yeah Jordan Reed wasn't on my radar either so I mean 
we lost out on some money there. And the dude who won the Millie Maker this week uh, went double tight end, Kelsey and Jordan Reed, uh, for the dub. So mm, Love to I see mean, it. He's, he's lit. Yeah. I mean, love to see it. Uh, so I was really surprised to see Travis Kelsey in the winning Millie Maker team, considering there were like three tight ends who, you know, had 20 plus points or maybe maybe even more. Nah, there was like seven. Yeah, Janu, Reed, no cap. Higby, Kelsey. Like, that's four right off rip. <laughs> yeah. mm-hmm. There was a lot. This this was National Tight End Day. There there was a lot of high-scoring tight ends. I'm pretty sure like 10-plus tight ends went over 15 points on DraftKings. Yeah, Gasicki snapped, man. I think that uh, we can look forward to, you know, having like three tight ends score 15 points next week. So <laughs> that'll be good to get back into some normalcy. Speaking of, you know, things that we can look to for the future, let's get into trend or trap and talk about some of the key usage stats that we saw this week, some of the interesting stats from the week and, you know, sort of predict whether these things are, you know, signs of the way the NFL will be over the next few weeks or if they're just one week anomalies. Uh, and starting off with Naheem Hines, who went from out touching Jonathan Taylor in week one to getting out touched 28 to one. My man had one touch in week two. <laughs> so, I mean, if Jonathan Taylor, first of all, if Jonathan Taylor is getting usage like that, he is going to be an easy RB one. I mean, he probably will be either way, but I mean, how do you feel about this split? Is it a game script thing from the fact that the Colts just dominated, you know, Minnesota and didn't really need to run too many, you know, passing plays, I guess, where you could see Naheem Hines coming in more or was it just, I don't know. I don't know. What was it? I think it's just the fact that Jonathan Taylor is the superior running back on the Colts and the Colts know that and they wanted to make it a point to get him the ball. Um, I feel like that's what they think gives them the best chance to win is pounding the rock with Jonathan Taylor. Uh, so I think it's a clear cut trend that we're going to see Jonathan Taylor have more touches than, uh, Hines in this backfield. It, it's Jonathan Taylor's backfield from now on. So we just have to move accordingly, but I also believe that Hines will have more than one touch, you know, in, in upcoming games. I, I think that is an anomaly. I think he'll sit around, uh, probably eight to 10 touches a game. But the Colts are going to be running the ball so much that Jonathan Taylor will still get his 20-plus touches while Hines is getting his 8-10. to 10. Yeah, they'll have to feed Jonathan Taylor because, I mean, Phillip Rivers is out there throwing balloons, and, and the offensive line is pretty great. So I feel like their only path to victory is going to be slamming it through the tackles with Jonathan Taylor. Let's talk about another rookie running back, young Joshua Kelly in LA who outtouched Austin Eckler surprisingly 25 to 20 in favor of Kelly. Now Kelly wasn't that efficient on the ground, only averaged 2.78 yards per carry, but I mean the fact that they gave him 23 attempts in his second NFL game is just incredible. That's great usage. Do you think that that is here to stay? And this is a pretty important question because Kelly and Eckler enter the nut matchup as they will both go against Carolina next week. I think that Kelly out touching Eckler is not here to stay, but I do think Kelly will be a factor in the backfield 
for the rest of the season. Within the last, you know, two or three years under Anthony Lynn, they want to run two running backs. So going back to Eckler and Melvin Gordon, they want to have that Melvin Gordon on their team to complement Austin Eckler. And they're going to use Joshua Kelly in that Melvin Gordon role, which is obviously going to get touches. He has no receiving upside, so I can't really see playing him on DraftKings, even though they are playing the Panthers next week, so they have the best matchup on the board. I don't think I can see myself playing them, but it's clear that they want him involved in the offense, which obviously hurts Eckler's stock a little bit, but Eckler can still get there with receptions. So Yeah, Eckler did have uh, four receptions today, so a little bit better than last week, and I will say the offense in general just looked quite a bit better with Herbert out there. He was pushing it down field a little bit more, playing a little bit more aggressive. I mean, that was one of the crazier events of today that just kind of got lost in the shuffle, you know, with Tyrod Taylor's surprising and mysterious chest injury that that Anthony Lynn had no idea about. I mean, they told Herbert he was starting like a few seconds before kickoff. He had no idea. He wasn't prepped. And I mean, you know, the kid did pretty well. I mean, as one of the one of his biggest haters, as someone who wants this you know, young, promising athlete to fail in life. You know, what do you have to say about Justin Herbert? Nah, I don't want Herbert to fail. I just don't believe he was a first-round pick in this draft. But, I mean, he looked good, and I will say he does make the Chargers offense look better than Tyrod Trashbag Taylor. So, hopefully they keep his ass on the bench for the rest of the season. Uh, But, I mean, Herbert, you know, he had some good plays. He also had some bad plays. He missed some throws some wide open throws. He threw an interception that was easily avoidable. He could have ran for the first down easily, but that's stuff that you want your rookie quarterbacks to go through so they so they know not what to do, you know, in, in upcoming games and that's why I feel like if you're going to draft a quarterback in the top 5, top 6, you play him. You don't let him sit behind a Tyrod or Ryan Fitzpatrick. Like what is that going to do for Herbert or Tua like it's going to do nothing I want my players to be out there getting the experience of playing in the NFL of running an NFL offense I don't want them sitting behind career scrubs just makes no sense to me maybe that's why I'm not an NFL coach or a GM they know more than me I guess back to the point Herbert he looked good and I mean you know maybe Maybe a lot of people were wrong about him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, man. I mean, speaking of letting the rookies play, I really hope that we get to see Tua sooner rather than later, maybe even for Thursday night, because that Dolphins-Jags game is looking real ugly, real unattractive on Thursday night football. So maybe a little Tua <laughs> spice could uh, make that a more interesting game. And while we're here talking about rookie backfield splits and stuff like that, Clyde edwards Hilaire. Real quick, I just thought it was interesting that we did see him get more involved in the passing game after that was a big question mark coming out of week one. He did have eight targets, caught six of them, only had 10 attempts on the ground, but that was kind of a game script thing. The Chargers actually played this game really well, kept it really close. But I think that, you know, just in general, that was encouraging to see that they're willing to give Edwards Hilaire eight targets. And I mean, he is shaping up to be a phenomenal fantasy pick. If you took him in the first round, I think he'll be in play in DFS every single week with touchdown upside. Just uh, you know, looking really good so far. Yeah, I mean, uh, Ceh, he cemented himself as the Chiefs' lead back. Daryl Williams didn't even have a touch, or excuse me, he had one touch, uh, one catch for twelve yards. He didn't have a single rush attempt. Um, he did get hurt maybe at one point. 
I, I forgot to okay. I forgot to mention yeah, him he, during all the people that got hurt. But yeah, he he did get hurt. That got kind of lost in the shuffle. I don't know if he was like hurt, hurt or what. But yeah, yeah. I didn't. E- I yeah. I didn't even see that he got hurt. Maybe that's why Darwin Thompson was running the ball a bit. Uh, but I mean, it, this is Ch's backfield, and it's obviously encouraging to see him get eight targets in a uh, in a negative game script for the Chiefs, which we usually don't see them in. Um, so I mean, eight targets could be a season high, even though it's week two, because the Chargers always play the Chiefs tough. So I think eight to ten targets is his ceiling in any given game. But I mean, if this is a guy that's going to get five catches plus the majority of the rushing attempts, uh, the sky's the limit for Ceh in this offense. Whether you know that's whether you think he's a good prospect or not. I mean, I don't think he's a great prospect, but he's a back that they want to give touches to on the best offensive football. So can't beat it. No, you cannot. Another backfield split that we saw some movement in today was the Tampa Bay backfield where it looked like Ronald Jones was, you know, off to a hot start, got that early touchdown, but finished the game with only seven attempts for 23 yards and that early touchdown had two receptions. And as the game wore on, we started seeing Leonard Fournette, who, you know, really started to pick it up, had 12 for 103 and two touchdowns caught four of his five targets. So, you know, to me, this makes perfect sense. I was saying it as soon as he got moved that I think he would struggle in week one against the Saints. They have a good run defense. He, you know, got added last minute, would need to learn the playbook, but it wouldn't be long before he supplanted Ronald Jones, who's just straight dog shit. And as inconsistent as I think that Fournette can be. I think that the opportunity is his. I think we saw him take that opportunity here. And I think that from this point forward, Fournette will probably lead this backfield in touches each and every week. Are you buying or selling that stance? I mean, I'm buying in that stance, obviously. Uh, Fournette is my son. Mm. And, you know, I, I agree that it would take a couple of weeks for him to learn the playbook, get used to Bruce Arians' offense, and all of the stuff that it takes to get acclimated to a new team after or after you get released from your old team, right? And he looked pretty good, honestly, and he had a 46-yard touchdown run where he broke a couple tackles, which a lot of people don't think he can break tackles, right? Uh, so, so that was definitely encouraging. But I, I think it's just a fact that Ronald Jones, he just sucks. It's that simple. Yeah. He's not he's not a good player. Um, I think he is a career NFL backup. I don't think he is capable of carrying a starter's workload. And we're gonna see that in the next couple of weeks. Uh we're gonna see Leonard Fournette getting fifteen, twenty, you know, maybe twenty two touches a game while Ronald Jones spells him on some third downs and maybe sits around six to eight touches a game and then uh i also believe Lashawn mccoy will get cut which also helps leonard fournette's outlook in my opinion yeah i mean Lashawn mccoy was ass (laughs) if you watch that game he was terrible i barely saw it but i did i mean but fournette getting five targets is really encouraging and yeah i mean i think he'll be probably sitting in that 18 to 22 touch per game range sooner rather than later last backfield note that i have for today is dalvin cook who through two weeks joey's only averaging 14.5 touches Mm. per game i mean that's rb2 usage dalvin cook is going to be one of the biggest season-long busts of the year if that usage holds do you think he can turn it around or is this vikings team 
just too bad because I think that that's a, a pretty major factor is that they're going to be a negative game scripts and they're trusting Madison on a lot of passing downs and it's just really not shaping up well for Dalvin Cook this season. Their defense is terrible. Uh, their secondary is abysmal. They can't stop the run. They obviously can't stop the pass. So they're going to be losing a lot in uh, these games and, and I and the Colts got out to what, like a 15 point lead early. And the Vikings just, I don't know what it is, but they don't want to throw to get back in these games. I don't know why that is. Kirk Cousins only had 26 attempts when they were losing the entire game. And I feel like if they're throwing more, that bodes well for Delvin Cook's outlook because he is a solid receiving back. I mean, he had two catches for eight yards on two targets this week. But Adam Thielen was the only player to have over four targets for the Vikings. So I just don't know what's going on in Minnesota right now. Yeah, and I mean, they just suck. And Dalvin Cook is salvaging right now due to scoring a couple of one or two yard touchdowns. I know he scored a couple in week one and he scored a touchdown this week from the one yard line. So that's saving owners like myself in these first two weeks. But if this keeps on going on, he he's definitely going to bust. Uh, so they, they need to get their shit figured out because something is wrong. What baffles me is like, how do you run 44 plays total in a game where you're losing for the entire game? Like, why don't you bump up the pace of play? Why don't you throw the ball more? Get the ball rolling a little bit. Like Mike Zimmer, you're absolutely bugging right now. And, you know, this is going to hurt Adam Thielen and Delvin Cook's fantasy outlook. And Kirk Cousins has been absolute trash this season to start out as well. So they need they need to turn it around ASAP. Yeah, they need to start getting some early career production out of Justin Jefferson as well. I think that would help open things up for Kirk. I'm surprised about Cook's usage in the receiving role, especially with all the targets that, you know, got vacated with Stefan Diggs, who had a monster day in Buffalo this week. But moving on to another usage note, Zach Ertz, Joey, was out targeted by Dallas Goddard eight to seven for the second straight week. I mean, is Goddard the tight end one in Philly now, or is this just, you know, a small sample size, two week type of thing? Yeah, I mean, I don't want to uh believe that just yet but I will say Goddard has been better than Ertz since week 11 of 2019 Mm. so the Eagles bye week was in week 10 in 2019 and ever since their bye week Dallas Goddard has produced more fantasy points than Zach Ertz uh, including the playoffs and these two games this year so I so I think that he can emerge as the tight end one above Zach Ertz Uh, Dallas Goddard is a great athlete a great contested catch tight end and low key profiles better as just a raw tight end from Zach Ertz, right? But Zach Ertz is still Zach Ertz. This is a guy where, you know, he knows how to get open. He's great at catching the ball. And I just think that Ertz and Goddard are the Eagles top two receiving options. Djax isn't a factor. Rieger isn't a factor yet. And then Sanders, uh, I think would be number three for me right now. But yeah, I mean, Goddard, you know, maybe by the end of the year, he is the Eagles tight end one, especially since this is a contract year for Zach Ertz. Yeah, Ertz, Ertz had some contract disputes, right? I think I read a story about yeah. that. So He was pissed about not receiving a contract extension, I believe, is what it was. Yeah, I mean, he he would be pissed. He's about to lose his job. 
straight up. <laughs> so I get that, but yeah, I don't think that extension's coming if you keep uh, you know, being outproduced by young Goddard. So yeah, Goddard might be the future in Philly. We're gonna close things out, Joey. I have a question for you. I've got three statements and I want you to tell me which one you feel the most confident in. Statement number one Calvin Ridley is the Atlanta Falcons wide receiver one. Statement number two, Deontay Johnson is the Steelers wide receiver one. And statement number three, Michael Gallup is the Dallas Cowboys wide receiver three. Give me your thoughts. If I had to choose one, it'd be Gallup is the Dallas wide receiver three. I believe Cooper and Lamb are better than him just from a receiver perspective. Yeah. And for fantasy, C.D. Lamb in the slosh is a complete mismatch on the field. I mean, we've been saying this for two weeks now. He's going to have the best matchup on the field at all times in the slot, which obviously bodes well for his outlook. So C.D. Lamb is, is a great fantasy asset right now to have. And then obviously Amari Cooper is a very solid wide receiver one that's going to see targets each and every week. Him and Dak have a very solid uh, connection. If I had to pick one, Gallup is definitely the Dallas wide receiver three, but it is close because Gallup is actually like a really talented player and you know if he went to like the Patriots or the Raiders he's the wide receiver one Uh, so that just goes to show the embarrassment of riches that the Cowboys have Uh, but just on the other ones I don't want to say Ridley is the Falcons wide receiver one yet I mean two great games in a row uh, four touchdowns for Ridley but Julio did have more receiving yards than him in week one and I still believe that Julio is one of the more dominant wide receivers in the NFL uh, just had a bad drop today which would have boosted his stats immensely uh, would have had a touchdown if he didn't drop that but I feel like he drops one of those every single year but Ridley is obviously very dominant so that's close I, I think he's getting to the wide receiver one status there And then Deontay Johnson, I don't know. I think they're just trying to force feed this man the ball. I think Juju is the better all-around wide receiver, but Deontay Johnson is a better playmaker. Now, I don't know if that makes him a better wide receiver, but he's just more explosive with the ball in his hands. And I feel like Mike Tomlin is making it a point to get him the ball to show that explosiveness. And he's a mismatch if he lines up in the slot as well. So if I had to rank them, I would put Gallup is the one I feel most confident in, Ridley, and then Deontay Johnson, number three. I've got it in the same exact order. I mean, I've been talking about fading Michael Gallup since best ball season. I mean, I I think that it's exactly like you said. Cooper is solid. I think Lamb might potentially be the best wide receiver on that team as he continues to develop. And right now, he's clearly getting the targets from Dak. Gallup was third in targets for the second straight week. As far as Calvin Ridley goes, I mean, Julio's just pure dust. I'm sorry. No shot. I'm sorry. You see it happens with these big-bodied receivers. It happens fast. Look at his uh, you know, draft year mate, A.J. Green. Dude got three catches on 13 targets on Thursday night football. These They're just old men. They're dust. They belong in a nursing home, not on the football field. Get them out of here. It's time to let the young blood shine. Calvin Ridley, Atlanta wide receiver one. I'm feeling real good about that. And then as far as Deontay Johnson goes, it's exactly like you said. I agree. I feel like they're force feeding him the ball. I don't know if like Juju did something to piss them off or if they just forgot how incredibly dominant he was in that one year, two years ago. But um, maybe at this point, though, I'm starting to feel like maybe I just have take lock and like how much I like Juju. 
and maybe I need to back off because, you know, all signs are pointing to a concerted effort to make Deontay Johnson the number one. I mean, he's out-targeted Juju 23-14 to 14 over the first two weeks. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's surprising that Juju isn't leading them in targets and, and what Deontay Johnson have, like 13 targets this mm-hmm. week, uh, which is crazy usage. And he's definitely going to be in play for DFS purposes if they keep on giving him this type of role and if DraftKings doesn't increase their price which it looks like they did for this week so I mean that's good but yeah I mean that's a situation to monitor and have you ever thought that Ridley is doing so well because Julio is you know getting two defenders drawn to him every single play no, I think it's because his body's breaking down because he's a decrepit old man, and Calvin Ridley's hey man. you know entering his. He prime. had a he had a buck fifty seven in week one. Bad. Everybody has a bad game here and there, so I, I want to bet against it. I just feel like Julio's been limping since like twenty seventeen. Every time he gets up after a contested catch. <laughs> and guess what? He still finishes in the top five receivers uh, in PPR leagues. So. Mm-hmm. All right, I guess I guess we'll see. I mean, I'm da- I'd definitely be down to take a rest of the season bet with you. Think that over if you want. Talk about it on Thursday, but uh, yeah, give me Ridley for the rest of the year for sure. But that's gonna be it for us, guys. Hope you enjoyed the recap of Week Two. We will be back as we always are on Thursday to preview the Week Three slate. Took an early look at the games, looking like it's gonna be a real interesting slate with a lot of garbage games and a few standouts. So that'll be really interesting to break down. Um, Like Joey said at the top of the show, you can follow us and support us by subscribing on any podcast platform, Apple, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Podcast Addict, wherever you listen to podcasts, we are there. Uh, Subscribe to the YouTube channel. We've been hitting lately on Joey's tournament videos as well as my cash pool breakdowns followed by the cash pool article on the dfsdose.com. You can also follow our personal Twitters. Mine is at Ben Hover, B-E-N-H-A-U-V-E-R. Joey, tell them where they can find you. You can find me on Twitter at Joey Carrion DFS. All right, guys, we will talk to you on Thursday.